Hey everyone, it's Jackie. Welcome to Chain Reaction, where we unpack and explain the latest in crypto news, drama, and trends, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. So at TechCrunch Disrupt, I did a panel with Brett Harrison, the former president of FTX, Kai Sheffield, head of crypto at Visa, and Mary Catherine Ladder, COO of Uniswap. We talked about everything from how the crypto startup world is evolving, giving the current bearish market sentiment, to advice they have for founders building in this space. We also discussed the regulatory gaps and how startups can venture through the current hurdles. Sheffield shared some interesting thoughts on how Web2 businesses can use blockchain technology and other real-world applications, while Ladder and Harrison dove into the importance of exchanges, both centralized and decentralized, among other things. It was a pretty lively conversation, and we wanted to replay it on the podcast for anyone who missed it and wanted to hear their thoughts. Hope you enjoy. Thank you, guys, for being here today. And as my boss, Alex, mentioned, Brett, I'd love to start with you. You were the president of FTX, and for those of you who don't know, it's the third largest crypto exchange globally. Uh, and Brett left a few weeks ago yep. at this point? Yeah. So what are you up to? What are you doing? Yeah, it was a, obviously an incredible wild ride at FTX. I was there for a year and a half. It was the longest year and a half of my life. <laughs> uh, and learned an incredible amount about this ecosystem, about crypto in general, and sort of caught the startup bug a little bit. And so starting to work on something new now. Do we get a hint on what you're working on? Uh, it, still in crypto. <laughs> That's the hint. Okay, fair enough. I'll ask you again next week. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, this past year, we were talking backstage about this. Last year, I'm pretty sure that was when uh, Bitcoin was nearing all-time highs. November time, we're almost there. And since then, the year has been pretty volatile and not fun for everyone in crypto. But I guess to start, even though we aren't in a bull market, it still feels like things are going well. Maybe I'm an optimist myself, but I'd love to hear what each of you think of this time right now in regards to the opportunities for crypto startups and for people building in this space. Sure, I'm happy to take that. There's other things to look at other than crypto prices, right? Especially if you're building something and you're excited about the technology and its potential and not crypto necessarily as an asset class. And I think it's a great time to be starting a crypto company for a lot of different reasons. One, you're going to get more signal as to whether you're building something useful and whether people actually want to use it. And I think that's much better if you're trying to actually start a company or a project that has a sustainable future. Another thing, you know, we're seeing lots of people taking advantage of the integrations and composability, ways to extend beyond the initial kernel of whatever they've built and try and connect to different parts of the crypto ecosystem. So we built, for example, Uniswap Labs has like a little widget that's like one line of code. You can integrate Uniswap. And we put no marketing or effort into it, frankly, into adoption. And we're finding more people are using it than ever. So I think there's tons and tons and tons of building still going on, and it's a really good time. Also, so much capital, frankly, has been raised to still start things that there's still a lot of investor support for the space. Yeah. I think it's interesting to compare the bear market now to the bear market in 2018, where at the time there were questions, would anything exist outside of Bitcoin? You know, there, there just really wasn't a lot for people to look at. And now we have things like stable coins, where you can represent dollars in fiat currencies and have them run on blockchain networks, have them use crypto infrastructure. And so I think this time, 
like the lines between fintech and crypto are really starting to blur where we're seeing founders and entrepreneurs that they're trying to solve a, a fintech problem and being able to use a dollar that runs over a blockchain you know, is a way to help them solve that problem that doesn't have anything to do with what the price of, of any crypto asset is on any given day. And so there's a lot more utility that is unlocked when you can actually use fiat currencies on blockchain networks. I think if you look at crypto market prices and you pull out of that all of the general market decline, like if you try to take you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum and a couple other blockchains and cryptocurrencies and kind of try to take out like S&P returns from that, what are you left with? I think you're left with how much are institutions trading in crypto and what are the actual applications that are being built on crypto? And you see leading indicators that those two things look very promising on the long run. One is that every sort of institutional source of uh, potential trading activity, whether that's you know, a hedge fund or a trading firm or an asset manager or like a liquid token fund at a VC, they're all doing stuff in crypto. You don't find anyone who said, you know, we're not going to touch crypto. Everyone wants to get involved. And the question is, how fast can they get involved? The second is that in the venture capital space, there has been no slowdown, really in terms of investment in crypto. Maybe rounds aren't like closing in 24 hours anymore, uh, but there's definitely tons of capital being deployed, tons of undeployed capital sort of waiting on the sidelines, ready to get in to see those projects kind of come and get that investment. And so we, I think that over the kind of short, medium, long run, you're gonna see this kind of immediately bounce back once markets as a, in general recover. What are some areas that each of you are following in terms of opportunities or what do you think will be the best crypto startups right now that will succeed when the next bull market happens, if and when that happens, sure. eventually, you know? <laughs> I think two classes for me, um, one is in infrastructure. Uh, so how can you more easily allow people to build upon blockchains? I mean, that's one of the big problems right now is sort of like the user experience, either from, as a, from a consumer perspective or from a developer perspective. So you see, you know, startups that are trying to be like the AWS for being able to build crypto apps and things like that are, are going to do really well over the short term. Also, apps that try to find better ways of using crypto for its utility as like a mechanism for decentralized transfer of information and not just for financial use cases. I'd say two things, I broadly agree with that. One, anything that makes the onboarding into crypto easier and more straightforward. Um, and then the second is safer. And so we invest in uh, companies that we think are contributing to the ecosystem broadly. And a couple of them are working on ways to reduce phishing attacks, ways to make it easier to understand what's in your wallet. So those may seem like small things, but you, you know, we're in a world right now, it's the equivalent of Gmail not really having a good spam filter and uh, in, in terms of your wallet experience. And so I think there's a couple really, we need to make some progress in that area to have more mainstream adoption. We're excited about that. Yeah, I think many of the products in the, the next phase, I think you could get to the point where consumers are using a product without knowing that there's crypto behind the scenes. And we haven't really seen that to date. Like over the past few years, everyone who's using crypto knows that they're using crypto. And so as the infrastructure matures, as, as Brett mentioned, there are many companies trying to abstract away the complexity of managing private cryptographic keys and you know, doing conversions you know, between assets where it feels like a Web2 or feels like a fintech product. It's just uniquely enabled by crypto on the back end. And it's, we're close to being able to build those. And I think that's what's going to drive a, a lot of the, the next cycle. Yeah, uh, actually, Kai, I'm glad you spoke because over 65, I'm always glad you spoke, but over 65 uh, crypto platforms and exchanges have actually partnered with Visa 
the latest announcement we had was between FTX and Visa. I know Brett's not with FTX anymore, but I'm pointing to him like he is. I'm curious, in regards to bringing that Web 2 to Web 3 and kind of bridging that gap, what is Visa's strategy here? Yeah, we think there's a huge role that we can play there. And, and I think for crypto assets and in, in stable coins in particular to have utility, you have to know that, that you can spend them places. And even if you take something like a, a remittance, we think there's significant potential to be able to use a stablecoin for a cross-border payment, but you have to have an off-ramp on the other side. You know, if you send someone a stablecoin, it could get there instantly, but then if it's really hard to get that stablecoin back into your bank account, or if there's no merchants that accept it, what's the point of doing the remittance in a stablecoin in the first place? And so we think when you combine you know, some of the benefits of blockchain rails that enable efficient cross-border payments with off-ramps that consumers are familiar with, where you can receive that remittance payment into an FTX account. You can then walk across the street and you could tap to pay with a Visa card. That unlocks a lot more utility where you don't have to think and plan ahead when you need to move you know, from crypto or stablecoin back out. And so our goal is, is to make those bridges and fiat on-ramps and off-ramps as seamless as possible, which we think will unlock many other use cases in the ecosystem when that's solved. At what point will we be able to have these like crypto on rails and blockchain technologies that not everyone knows they're using it, but it's implemented in a way that is in our everyday ecosystem beyond just like the crypto community. I, I think it, it also depends where, you know, in the United States, you know, if you have dollar based banking, you know, you have Apple Pay, like there are not really significant problems on a day to day basis. But when we talk to entrepreneurs and, and consumers, you know, in Nigeria and Tanzania and Argentina, like there's a lot of demand to just access dollars and then not just access dollars, but have dollar denominated financial products. And so we're seeing a new class of entrepreneurs that are building today. You still kind of know that it's crypto. You're still looking at a hexadecimal you know, address. You still have to understand what the private key is. But we think we're a few steps away from it just looks and feels like Venmo, but it was built by someone who never had to go and do a partnership with a large bank. They were able to build it at a hackathon and it provides value in letting people hold and transfer dollars outside the United States. I think the true kind of crossover of adoption here will be when people can actually not just hold crypto as if they were their normal bank accounts, but it's actually the primary way that they use to transact as opposed to sort of immediately, let's say, off-ramping into fiat. Sorry for the like, trite analogy, but it reminds me like of the early days of MP3s. What were the first things that people did with digital copies of music was burn CDs, right? To make mix of CDs of MP3s, they immediately kind of off-ramped from the sort of digital music onto like the physical music. And at some point people realized, actually, we don't really care about having the physical objects anymore. It's okay just to own the digital one and kind of completely transact in that natively digital format. I think the same thing will become true of, let's say, USDC where once you know, Visa is everywhere letting people and merchants take USDC, then they don't necessarily need to off-ramp until like, but, you know, they have to go into one specific kind of transaction, doesn't accept it. But for the most part, within a community, within an ecosystem, they can actually just transact entirely digital. And that will be, I think, when the, the ecosystem really shifts to that kind of adoption curve. Cool. I want to shift a little bit to MC. And in regards to Uniswap, for those who don't know, Uniswap is a decentralized protocol. I'm sure she could tell you more about it. But how do you see crypto native platforms like Uniswap growing and maturing beyond the Web3 ecosystem into other markets? 
Well, I think there's still a lot of opportunity to keep growing in the Web3 ecosystem. So for example, swapping tokens today is kind of a distinct experience from buying and selling NFTs. And that's why we're launching NFTs in a couple of weeks, because we think that that doesn't make a ton of sense, that actually there should be more interconnectivity between those user experiences, and you can kind of unlock new use cases and user behaviors if you bring them closer together. So I actually think that today, many of the Web3 applications are a little more siloed than hopefully they will be in the next few months and certainly years. And there's a lot of product development opportunities uh, to just continue to push in that direction. But you're right in that the Uniswap protocol, which is an open source protocol, it's, it's self-executing smart contracts, on the Ethereum blockchain and now on a few other Ethereum-compatible blockchains, that that the, part of the core innovation of the Uniswap protocol is it lets you swap any two tokens for each other and create and bootstrap liquidity and bootstrap market without a centralized market maker. That has huge potential in traditional financial services and lots of different asset classes. That's a fundamental innovation that's new in financial services and markets. And so you're right in that there's a lot of opportunity to extend that into traditional finance. What Uniswap Labs, which is the, the company that developed is focused on now is still the Web3 ecosystem and making it more accessible because as, as you heard in both Kai and Brett's comments, there's still so much to do to make these use cases better and the technology better that and people like Kai and places like Visa realize the opportunity. And so frankly, you need people in those institutions that already have that scale to figure out how it works for them. So for example, we're not trying to, we're not knocking on doors across Wall Street saying, please come use the Uniswap protocol. Um, what's much more important is that we make it easy to integrate, easy to use, and help figure out what the barriers to broader adoption are. And that's what will make the open source technology like this so much more powerful. Right. And Uniswap works with a lot of DeFi apps that build on its platform. What do you think the timeline would be to start integrating more traditional startups? You mean like fintech? Yeah. Like um, of crypto. Well, I mean, is Coinbase a traditional startup? Uh, Coinbase <laughs> integrates the Uniswap protocol. Um, Robinhood with their crypto wallet, with their wallet, actually now uh, you could potentially use Uniswap through that. Um, so there is a lot of opportunity, I think, particularly with fintech apps that are inching into crypto. You've seen partnerships, particularly with neo banks in different markets that have like really big use cases for stable coins. And so I think that all that is is like very very imminent. Cool. I kind of want to go into the regulatory part of our panel's headline. Uh, in regards to crypto regulation or the lack thereof, how would you all advise startups building in this space to prepare for the future of regulation when there's not really a framework, but they also want to exist when it does come? Sure. Yeah, I think there's a few really important considerations to take into account when you're starting a startup in crypto. One is kind of where are you going to primarily be based as a company? Because as you know, with 180 countries, 180 different approaches to crypto regulation. And, you know, the U.S. has their particular way. You know, the Bahamas has their particular way. European Union has their particular way. And I think it's very important to understand, like, what talk to counsel and figure out what are you doing and what's possible in each different jurisdiction. The second is, you know, to what extent are you providing some service that, like, is largely not financial? versus you're trying to mimic some sort of financial product that already exists. And if you're doing the latter, you know, what is the regulation that jurisdiction that most closely resembles it? So if you're in the U.S. and you're trying to create a, you know, derivatives protocol, you know, to what extent do you need to interface with the Commodity Futures Trading Commission who regulates derivatives in the U.S.? And again, there's really no substitute for just getting good counsel from the very beginning to kind of help make sure that you're navigating the regulatory waters from the very beginning and don't find yourself sort of backpedaling down the road when you're, uh, when you're in trouble. 
I agree with everything Brett said. I think though, it's a lot to navigate if you have very limited resources and maybe no experience in law or regulation or even potentially financial services regulation specifically. So I think the simplest rule of thumb is if you had to go before a judge and explain why what you're building is good for the world and good for a user, do you feel like you can do that? And if you can't, you shouldn't worry too much <laughs> because ultimately regulation is designed to protect the public interest, it's to protect consumers, it's to reduce risks, it's to allow for positive economic growth. And so if you can have a sort of a guiding line of like making sure that what you're doing is sustainably positive, that's the most important thing. And again, I think that like that sort of qu quick test of can I explain this to someone but why it's positive is most important. And the second thing, that I also think is important, I, I would agree, is there are a lot of public resources out there now about around crypto regulation policy, potential outcomes. It's all over Twitter all the time. And so just to kind of stay educated and stay in the mix to have a sense as to how things are unfolding is important. I think it's interesting though that there's just such a huge design space for building in crypto today where you don't have to build a product that is you know, holding funds on behalf of consumers or initiating transactions on their behalf. You know, there are a number of pieces of, of infrastructure that, that need to exist. There are ways that, you know, you can display and interact with existing assets without directly touching or, or holding them. And so I wouldn't want entrepreneurs to think that, you know, building anywhere in crypto is going to require this huge challenge of how to navigate this evolving regulatory ecosystem, that there are many different approaches that, that you can take that aren't directly regulated products. Yeah, I think a good analogy there is if you're building Yahoo Finance or Bloomberg, that doesn't really require that much sort of uh, regulatory rails up front because you're kind of building sort of a display app, you're aggregating data. If you're building Robinhood, well, Robinhood is a broker, they kind of require a lot of the sort of customer protection disclosures you'd require as a broker, which is not gonna be as hard as if you're gonna try to be NASDAQ, which has, you know, listing standards and these kinds of things. And so you have to understand kind of where you fit in the ecosystem if you're doing a financial product to figure out if, you know, what it is you're doing requires that regulatory approval ahead of time. Great, awesome. Aside from financial applications, what are some of the apps that each of you are focusing on that you think are promising or kind of needed right now? I think NFTs are one of the most interesting primitives that exists in, in crypto. And I think one of the big reasons is it's bringing a new class of institutions and consumers you know, into the space. And they're people who don't care about crypto per se, they care about culture. And it's just being another way that you can represent and you can interact with and you can create culture. And so I think that the combination of everything from individual artists and creators of how they're bootstrapping you know, businesses that you know, they might have, they used to sell on Etsy and now you know, they're building a much larger business with you know, NFT programmable art, as well as, as you see traditional brands, I think what Nike has done you know, with Nike Crypto Kicks and you know, their NFT initiatives, it's fascinating that they've been able to take a brand that people you know, really care about and have it as a new distribution model you know, for their products. And so if you imagine that as you see certain brands be successful in this space, other brands are gonna wanna follow, but it's pretty difficult to figure out you know, how do you mint an NFT? You know, how do you airdrop it to a wallet? How do you build applications on top of it? Uh, so I think it's a it's a whole class of crypto consumer that you know is appealing to a new set of entrepreneurs and people that some of the crypto financial applications might not have necessarily been. 
I agree with that. I also think mobile wallets, and I think I'm excited for mobile wallets to get a lot better because I think then we'll start to see how the power of having like a digital passport with your data, um, with your assets, but also just like your data that allows you to in instantly connect easily to other applications um, is really powerful and unlocks a whole lot of other use cases. So um, I think there's a lot of, of improvement and opportunity to come. I'm excited about the, the use cases for tokens for um, you know, solving the cold start problems for creating networks. You know, especially there are some you know, Internet of Things style startups where basically, let's say you, you, know, you buy a device that's going to help put on your car to create like a kind of Google Maps mapping of the, of the, you know, the world and your environment. And you know, you're given some tokens in exchange for participating in this network and sort of the tokens accrue value over time. And it's a way of kind of rewarding people with sort of a share of the success of this network from being an early participant. And I think that's a potentially very powerful concept where usually you have to spend like lots of VC money on kind of advertisement and customer acquisition. And the to tokens are a way of doing that from scratch. And that's pretty exciting for, for new startups coming into the space. Cool. One of the questions we got was, can you share your thoughts on centralized traditional finance companies like Visa getting involved in the crypto space and how can they retain decentralization? I think all of you could contribute, but Kai, if you want to go first. Sure. I, I think we feel very strongly that decentralization is, is a spectrum and not this binary of are you decentralized or not. And just pursuing decentralization for the sake of it doesn't really solve a customer problem. And so I think what's unique about crypto is you can have products exist entirely across that spectrum. And then if someone wants to you know, live off the grid and manage keys you know, themselves and never interact with the centralized, they can. They're welcome to do that. But we think for crypto to impact you know, many more mainstream consumers, they're going to want to have products that are more familiar, more trusted. They're going to want to have someone that they can call and that they can talk to. And I think the experience, particularly for transacting in crypto today, there's a very high mental transaction cost. You know, anyone who's been in the space, if you're sending funds over a blockchain, the irreversibility is, it's kind of frightening. You're checking the address multiple times. If something goes wrong, like there's nothing that you can do. And so I think that there are features to that where it's a benefit and there are challenges to that that prevent consumers from being able to use it. And so, you know, we think that there's a role for many companies to play building products at different points of that spectrum that appeal to different customer segments. And most customers aren't going to be ideological about the underlying technologies that power the products they use. But decentralized protocols and technologies do have fundamental benefits, right? They do allow for um, more access. They do create competition, particularly by being open source, and they can create new incentive structures. So Uniswap is an example where it's essentially a marketplace where you can be rewarded for providing liquidity, and you don't. That means that you're not relying on a central intermediary to determine what has a market, what the price is, and take a cut of that price. And that's extremely empowering and enabling. That's part of the huge potential and promise of crypto is to take not just instant settlement, but also some of the other efficiencies and advantages of crypto and decentralized protocols to apply them to financial markets. Having said that, most of today's capital is in centralized financial institutions and players. And those centralized companies can just as easily use and integrate with decentralized protocols and still be, as, as Kai was explaining, kind of on-ramps, off-ramps, uh, and different sort of entry points into a decentralized system. So I think, ultimately, I'm optimistic that we'll get to a place where you'll see more centralized companies using decentralized protocols where there are benefits and where it makes sense. Cool. Uh, this one's directed at Mary, but I think everyone could answer this as well. Or maybe more Mary and Brett. 
Kai, of course, feel free to join in. But do you think centralized exchanges and decentralized exchanges will continue to coexist or decentralized exchanges will be the primary venue for crypto? And how could they coexist in the future? I, I do think they'll continue to coexist. And I think you see that in uh, Coinbase integrating Uniswap protocol and Coinbase Wallet, making it sort of the top app in the Coinbase Wallet, that they serve slightly different functions. I mean, the Uniswap protocol has three to four times the market depth in the top trading pairs and pools of some of the centralized exchanges. And that, I think, just illustrates the benefits of the market structure. So I think they will continue to coexist, and I don't think there's an inherent conflict. And we could do uh, audience participation. How many people here got their first crypto through an exchange like Coinbase, FTX, Binance, Gemini? Okay. How many people got their first crypto being airdropped into their MetaMask wallet? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah. One person. <laughs> right. <laughs> Centralized exchanges are currently the on-ramps into crypto. And until we have this sort of like you know, closed ecosystem where we're completely transacting in crypto and not off-ramping into fiat, the only way to be able to have access to the traditional financial system to be able to accept wires and ACH transfers from banks is, in the first place, to be a centralized institution that has the relationship with banks, with credit card providers, with different issuers. And so as long as we want to have alongside the traditional financial system the ability to like, transact in both fiat currency and cryptocurrencies, we're going to need those centralized players. Now, that being said, the primary way that people onboard, for example, into the Solana ecosystem was by first buying Sol on FTX US and then transferring that directly to their you know, hot wallet, their phantom wallet, whatever it was. And so the centralized exchanges really can become on-ramps directly into DeFi. And that will probably grow over time as DeFi gets more mature and has a lot more interest in use cases. And that will, again, those two things will sort of grow side by side. What do you think are some of the biggest mistakes crypto startups are making right now and how can they fix it? I think what, maybe one of the biggest mistakes is trying to invent kind of a problem for a solution where sort of they say, okay, I want to do something in crypto. And so I'm just going to do like Twitter, but I'm going to make every single tweet into an NFT and not really think like, okay, well, what is the utility of this? What is this? What is the benefit that this provides, you know, over sort of the existing web to, you know, traditional worlds of technology? You know, what, what actually is the utility and use case of using a blockchain to underlie this particular technology as opposed to doing things the old way? I think if you could figure that out, then you have this very exciting new startup and that, that will really kind of bring a lot of users and utility. But I see a lot of startups sort of making the mistake of trying to just sort of like glue blockchain together into what they're doing without a lot of thought. It's not a mistake so much, but I think that in the next uh, year, is particularly in a slowdown in the market, it's going to be even more important that teams invest in growing their user base. We, for the past couple of years, have had the tailwinds of overwhelming excitement and the benefits of a lot of incentives. And so now, in a different market environment, I think teams that maybe started out as purely technical teams are going to have to think also creatively about adding to their team or uh, coming up with new tactics to attract new users. Yeah, I, I think the, the barrier to getting someone to interact with crypto for the first time is much higher than a lot of people realize. And I feel like if that's what the product requires, like the level of care and design that you have to put into it, if you're going to take someone who's never interacted with crypto that doesn't use it, and that's going to be the first crypto product that they use, I feel like sometimes it's actually easier to start saying, you know, where are there consumers who've already on-ramped into a, a wallet like Fancip or MetaMask? How can you build something for that initial user base? And, and I feel that way to some extent with NFTs that everyone wants to bring more people into NFTs and 
some of the infrastructure isn't really there yet, where there are really interesting opportunities to solve for creating experiences and utility around these existing smaller passionate communities that if you can solve for as the overall ecosystem grows, those products can apply to that as well. And so really being realistic about what it takes to bring someone into the space, I, I think is really important to consider. Are there any regions that each of you are focusing on right now that you think is either promising or challenging for crypto adoption? Well, one thing that's kind of fun about crypto is almost everything you do is instantly global. And so then you can kind of see where you're getting adoption. And, uh, you know, our, the use of Uniswap's web app is very geographically distributed. It's very much global. The largest market represents only 30%. There's a lot of potential, unsurprisingly, in Asia, Japan and Hong Kong, uh, in particular, Taiwan, Korea. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to focus on more sort of targeted uh, approaches to different markets because now we have a little bit more information about like what resonates in different markets. But yeah, part of the fun of this whole space is that when you launch a product, it's kind of instantly global. Yeah, I think we're really excited about crypto adoption on the, the African continent where countries like Nigeria have a lot of technical talent and entrepreneurial you know, builders, but there's not a lot of traditional financial infrastructure that is easy for them to build on. And so when we think about fintech in the U.S., you know, you have mature companies, you have banking as a service, you have Marquettas. There are all these things that you can do in some of those countries. You know, stable coins become, you know, the, the easiest way that you could build a financial product. And so we're seeing real, I think the places where stable coins and crypto can be used as a medium of exchange are going to be places that existing products, you know, have not been able to penetrate. And you're actually, you know, the first time someone can transact cross-border could be with a stablecoin when they don't have other alternatives. Cool. I joked backstage that I wasn't going to make you guys do price predictions, but given that the title does say markets, I will ask, where do you all see the crypto markets going within, say, the next year? Well, I think it's, I'll say it's not independent from what happens to global markets. I think for the better part of a decade, money was free, and it's no longer anymore. And even though interest rates aren't like particularly high in the, in the grand scheme of like in the last like three or four decades of history, they still have spooked a lot of people from wanting to invest in like the high growth sector and sort of like their more risk on assets and kind of more volatile assets like cryptocurrencies. Even some fiat currencies these days are, are fairly uh, volatile. So I think that we have to see kind of general recovery in markets, but to see recovery in cryptocurrencies as well. But I think that probably over the course of the next, let's say, six months-ish, the market will sort of stabilize, get used to this higher interest rate environment, and then the cycle will come back. Agreed. <laughs> I think we've seen these cycles before. And so, you know, the price goes up, a lot of people come in, the price goes down, many people leave, a few stay, and no one knows how long it's going to take, but that's when the products that are built that then catalyze excitement, you know, for prices to go up again. If you had more free time, what would be the decentralized app you would build? If I had more free, I'd spend all my time on identity, I think, if I had more free time. You would what? Identity. I think uh, for me, I sort of can't stand the amount of usage of things like TikTok from people not getting paid to twist up on TikTok. And I'm making fun of Jacqueline because she made me dance on a TikTok 30 minutes ago. <laughs> we made a TikTok before this. Um, Maybe you guys will see it. Uh, but <laughs> I, I think working on sort of better ways of enabling kind of the long tail of the creator economy besides sort of that top kind of 1% of creators to be able to sort of they're monetized their kind of everyday posts and interactions would be really cool. But something I know absolutely nothing about, so I have a zero founder market fit. 
Yeah, I, I think there's there's so much to build around like NFTs and, and loyalty. And so I think about NFTs as it's this like public permissionless, you know, CRM that gives someone like a their own digital cultural identity that every NFT they've collected says something about them. And so all of this data is is available and it's skew level of what color shoes you bought is available on chain. But today it's just very hard to organize it, to do anything with it. And so I see each you know, NFT community as it's, it's almost like a membership program and ways that not just that community itself can create utility, any third party can create utility, can create offers, can reach out and can connect you know, to them. And I think when you combine that with some of the innovations around wallet to wallet messaging, I think we'll see a lot more social multiplayer like crypto experiences rather than just it's an individual collecting and you know, there's not really anything else you do after you buy it. My last question for you guys is what would be one piece of advice you would give crypto startups today? This is standard startup advice, but I think it's particularly important in crypto, which is just to focus. I think that because there's low startup costs, because uh, it's easy to get started in crypto, because it's a hot space, you can hire people potentially more easily than in other areas, you can feel like you can do a lot at once and faster than if you were not building in crypto. And I think that uh, we're all still subject to the laws of physics. You can only do so many things. And I think the most important thing, um, and that I see over and over in really early stage companies that look to us for support, is the importance of focusing on doing one thing well first. I think the advice would be to enter the space now while prices are low and therefore you're not sort of confused about the mission of why you're building in the first place. It's not to try to game the market and get rich quick off of a fad. It's about building for what you think is sort of the next generation of financial markets, the next generation of the decentralized internet, the next generation of kind of global participation in these giant networks and use that to sort of focus your time, attention, and energy, as opposed to thinking about kind of the short term of market prices. Yeah, I, I think you have to have a very long-term outlook. There's just, there's too much happening. It's moving too quickly. There are too many trends that come and go. I think the worst thing you could do is try and chase, you know, short-term trends, but really thinking about what will crypto look like and what will these technologies do, you know, over the next 10 years and then working backwards from that. And, and I think you really have to, to love it. Like, to me, cryptos, it's almost like a lifestyle. It's like, it's something that you live. And so if it's just something you're showing up and doing at work, and then you're going home and you never think about crypto and you don't care about it, you're probably not going to be able to successfully build something in, in the space. Great. And one of the questions I got from one of the audience members was, how can they connect with you and or your venture wings? 30 um, seconds or less, each of you. <laughs> you can DM me on Twitter or... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so in the crypto world, Twitter seems to be uh, the sort of de facto <laughs> uh, open outcry town hall. Uh, yeah, Twitter is the best place. Uh, on Twitter or visa.com slash crypto, uh, we're excited to work closely with you know, early stage crypto startups and find ways we can you know, help them connect to the existing financial system. Great. Brett, MC, Kai, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for everyone for listening in. We'll be back every week with the top news on the crypto ecosystem. Catch us on Tuesdays for interviews with experts in the Web3 space. You can keep up with us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite pod platform, and subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction. Links to the newsletter and the stories we talked about can be found in our show notes, and be sure to follow us at Chain underscore Reaction on Twitter. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Anita Ramaswamy, along with my co-host, Jacqueline Melanick. 
We are produced by Ashad Kulkarni and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets with editing by Cal Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.